0: Hello and a welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best build and maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time. My name is Brett, and I'll be your host on this journey. And to start today's episode off, I want to draw your attention to a quote by the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. This is at the heart of today's episode, as we'll be diving into the topic of meaning, primarily how we've lost contact with it, how we can reconnect to it, and what its fruitional qualities are. To help us explore this topic is Dr. John Verveke, an award-winning lecturer and professor from the University of Toronto and the Departments of Psychology, Cognitive Science, and Buddhist Psychology. He's most widely known for his 50 part YouTube lecture series titled Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. In this conversation, we're going to talk about his philosophy at large and also get into some pithy directions and how you can orient yourself toward virtue and self transcendence. If this is something you want to continue studying after this episode, I highly encourage you to check out his YouTube series with his newest one, After Socrates, now releasing on a weekly basis. And if you want to support this show, consider heading on over to patreon.com slash 21stCenturyVitalism, and becoming a patron, it really does help keep the lights on. If you don't want to support financially, that's okay. You can always engage with us on social media by liking, following, subscribing. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram and YouTube, so that's where you can stay updated with all the happenings of the show. And There's also some bonus material I've been putting out through Instagram in the form of some writings and some quotes that I think are very important and relevant to this work of cultivating vitality. So I'm going to keep the intro short for today because we have a really meaty conversation coming up. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Again, this is Dr. John Verveke. Please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and whatever you can do, just open your hearts and let's dive in. Heck yeah, we are now live. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. It's It's, really quite a pleasure. It's a
1: great great honor to be here, Brett. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so a little bit of background. I have been pretty much devouring your lecture series on today's (laughs) subject. Uh, It took me a moment to get to it after I had you scheduled. I was familiar with some of your other conversations, but as soon as I started, uh, wow, I am taken away by just your depth of knowledge and the scope and the amount of time periods and figures that you've interwoven into this uh, idea of exploring meaning. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do a disservice to that lecture series because it's 50 hours and it (laughs) obviously is very comprehensive, (laughs) but for the sake of this conversation and listeners who might not know who you are or what you do... um, What exactly are we talking about when we say meaning and why is that important to the human functioning?
1: So the meaning that I'm interested in, um, we're actually using a a metaphor. We're using uh, the property that a sentence has. Like it's meaningful, you can comprehend it, you can determine if it's true or false, if it's a statement or a proposition, or you can respond to it if it's a question, etc. We're using that as a metaphor for something else. Uh, that's not mostly carried by um, your, uh, your propositions, the, the propositions you believe, but it has more to do with what people call meaning in life. And what this means, uh, uh, no pun intended, is um, that people have a sense of connectedness to themselves, to other people, to reality that makes life worth living even when there might not be a particular large amount of pleasure in their life, um, when they might be suffering from frustration um, um, and some failures, but they don't fall into a sense of futility or absurdity or nihilism. Those bonds of connectedness are enough that it sustains them um, in finding their life and the lives that their life touches worthwhile enough uh, to keep on going. Um, and of course, the when the, the lack of that kind of meaning in life opens you up to loneliness, a sense of absurdity, alienation, a kind of existential anxiety, nihilism, despair, potential suicide, um, uh, these kinds of factors. And of course, a lot of these things, uh, a lot of symptoms of uh, a loss of that kind of meaning are becoming more and more prevalent um, in, in Western civilization. And so... Um, if you are concerned with trying to address this suffering and also afford its opposite meaning in life, um, you want to understand well why is this happening? What's going on historically? What's going on cognitively? What are the kinds of things that have worked in the past? Why aren't they working now? Uh, what, kind, what kind of thing could perhaps work uh, now? And so th- that's 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 the core. A, a good test if you want to know what's what contributes to your sense of meaning in life is to ask yourself these two questions. What would you want to continue existing even if you did not? And how do you make a real difference to it while you are here? Those, mm-hmm. and if you can answer the first and give a good answer to the second, chances are you have something that is contributing significantly your sen- to your sense of mattering, to your sense of connectedness, et cetera. If You're unsure about either one of those two questions. Um, I don't know if there's anything I want to exist other than me, uh, right? Uh, And um, I don't think I make much of a difference to much of anything outside of my own egocentric concerns. Then chances are that kind of meaning in life is at risk in your life right now in a significant way. Mm. So was there
0: a point in your life when you kind of made this recognition that you know, there was like a sleep-like quality to the modern existence that we have and maybe recognizing some of that within yourself to where you started your journey into discovering meaning and creating uh, the work that you're doing. Was there a kind of like an inciting incident that there was, brought that about?
1: There was, but it went the other way around. Um, I experienced sort of uh, a personal meaning crisis, and I attempted to understand it. Um, and then when I started to connect that up with some uh, emerging cognitive science and uh, talk to my students about it, I saw their eyes lighting up and I started to realize, oh, I think this is a general thing um, and not just idiosyncratic to me. And then that's when I started on the project of, well, what is this general thing? What are the general patterns? In what way did, uh, do, c- can I get free from sort of idiosyncratic bias and understand this in a more comprehensive manner? And and for me, um, and this 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 actually also overlaps with a significant number of people. I was brought up in a very a very fundamentalist Christian religious framework, and when I was about fifteen, I abandoned that, um, and that became. I mean, I, there's the, well, there was the initial. Uh, there was the initial sort of joy the, because of the alleviation of uh, of a lot of the oppression and the freedom to think more clearly and rationally and to explore and to and, and to look around and that was exhilarating, but uh, very quickly um, I uh, also started to feel that although I had rejected uh, religious framework the taste for the transcendence that it had left in my mouth was right was still unaddressed, um, and then I met. In uh, first year university, I met the figure of Socrates and the, and the the project of the cultivation of wisdom and what it means to lead a meaningful life. I mean, he died uh, basically proclaiming the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and so that's, that's what started me on my journey. And then as I started to get a better, and this is a lot of work, you know, work and therapy and reflection and meditation and contemplation and Tai Chi Chuan and a lot of discussion and a lot of philosophy and psychology I started to get some sense of what was going on like I said I started to bring these topic up these topics up at the university I think at the University of Toronto I was the first p- person to teach about mindfulness in an academic setting at the University of Toronto um and, and and then and start talking about these issues of meaning in life and connectedness and problems of self-deception and the importance of wisdom and my students were like and then that's when I started to really uh and i really explore and look for a more general. And then I found that a lot of people had done a lot of great work um, on this more general issue. In fact, it's a very hot topic now within. Wisdom, meaning, and life are very hot topics, and for good reason. And so, and and, and related things like mindfulness, uh, mystical experience, psychedelic states, all of these things are hot topics uh, in academia, um, not just in the culture, the, the general culture. And so there was a lot of resources there for pursuing this general question. What does, what's going wrong in general, not just for John or John's friends? Um, and um, and that's when I started to work with other people like Christopher Master Pietro, Philip Misovic, and, uh, and and started to put together an argument as to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that
0: you kind of bring up that there was a personal kind of difficulty happening that spurned on this desire to create this entire concept of searching for meaning, uh, at least within yourself. And that kind of resonates with my journey as well, is like what's propelled my growth the most was actually bumping up against those difficult moments in life. And is that a really common theme within people starting this journey of like looking for meaning is like, I'm really hurting right now. and I
1: need to create something. I mean, I, I mean, we don't want to be overly simplistic about this, and, and that's, a, that's an attendant danger. But when we, when we move into these limit situations, there's a bunch of options open to us. Um, you know, we may think, well, there's something wrong in my environment, and maybe I need to move my environment or try to change my environment. And sometimes that's true. I, I don't want to deny that. But sometimes when we bump up against these, I'm hurting, um, we start to wonder about that perhaps... You know, self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns are actually the main cause of this hurt. And once again, I want to emphasize, I'm not claiming that's always the case. People are victimized. People are traumatized. People are the, right, uh, the, you know, the recipients of violence and deception and manipulation. I'm not denying any of that. Uh, but what I'm saying is, uh, for for you and I and many other people, we get, I'm hurting, and why? Like, well, like there's not, this, like... Um, and, and, right, sometimes that hurt and the why, when it becomes genuine wonder, when you're willing to call yourself and your world into question, and Socrates said that wisdom begins in wonder, right, when you get that kind of wonder, you start to think, like Socrates, actually, you start to think, there's wow, I, you know, I'm making all these mistakes and there's these patterns I keep falling into and there's this self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior I'm engaging in, and not only individually, but in the groups I'm participating in. We can see these dynamics. Maybe we're all echo chambering around some really toxic ways of trying to uh, process information from the world, et cetera. And that, I think, when you, turn, when you start asking the Socratic question, and there is good reason to make that the priority question, I think those limit situations can put you on a search for meaning uh for wisdom etc yeah
0: with my own practice with pursuing mindfulness and studying buddhism it's really given me a, a lot of different tools to investigate yes. my internal experience yes. and one of the things that really comes up for me is this sense of needing to be courageous because oftentimes, when you turn your focus in on your internal structures and you start to see that self deception or the thing, uh, the formal term of bullshit within yes, yourself, yeah. there's something about that that I think if you don't have the proper container to really n- navigate that, it can be really extra painful. It's like we yes. like add on pain onto yeah. pain. So you know the, the importance of touching that uh, fact that like we are very fallible, and the way that we view ourselves and the world is is just littered with gaps of clarity. Yes, you know, and you know how do we cultivate a stronger ability to withstand that um, that inquiry? And to be able to do that work without allowing it to capsize us and like, oh, my God, I am a mess. <laughs> like, you, know, you have to touch it. But at the same time, we still have to live our lives. We have to be in the world. And it's hard in our modern day, especially with people who are working 40, 50, 60-hour yeah, jobs. I agree. To do this kind of work. There's almost maybe like a privilege to it. I don't want to throw that word around flippantly. But, right. you know, like like, how do we strengthen our container to do that work?
1: And again, I don't want to deny that there are people who are, are, are living under very exigent circumstances financially, economically, and, um, and that this is very, right, This is especially challenging. However, I, I, I do think that a lot of us have more time available to us. That we don't recognize precisely because of the way these self deceptive, self destructive patterns chew up time, the way we can become addicted to our cell phone or social media or, or whatever, you know, and uh, video games, right? They're, they're uh, like, just take a look at your screen time report and think, wow, I, you know, I probably don't need it. I, 70% of that screen time is non productive. I could do something else with it. Um, and, and, and also, you know, um, the fact that once you realize that and start to undertake some of these practices, initially it is harder. This but, this, but this isn't unique to what we're talking about. right? It's called utilization deficiency. Whenever you undertake a strategy to improve your performance, your performance initially degrades, right? Because you're devoting a lot of energy towards breaking old habits up and trying to acquire something and that, that hasn't come into competence and so you, you that you 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 suffer that deficit for a while that's why it's very very important to undertake any kind of significant transformation in community with other people that are co-committed right uh, to that transformation you, you know this is just basic if you want like if you want to lose weight you 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 have much better chances of losing weight and keeping it off as if you join a group where other people are committed to that and you reinforce it. Um, so you need, you need and, and, and this goes back to your initial point, uh, you need regular and reliable sources of rational encouragement, encouragement. Um, people that give you a, a, a reliable, trustworthy sense that this is doable this is doable in a really lived life. It doesn't depend on you being sort of independently wealthy. Um, and that there will be pitfalls. There will be dark. Uh, I warn my meditation students that there will be periods in which weird stuff is happening to you if you pursue meditation. Uh, Willoughby Barton has done work on this too. Like there's a dark side to this. Um, I was actually startled. I was at a conference. She was speaking at this conference. And I said, well, I, before I start any meditation class, I forewarn people about these possibilities. I say, don't go looking for them, but don't overreact to them when they happen. And, and also, if something that's coming up that seems like good evidence of trauma, stop the practice and get treatment for the trauma. And, and I, I said, I'm sure most, people, most you know, people teaching that are doing that. And she said, no, most people teaching mindfulness are not forewarning people about that. And I I think that's just irresponsible, if not immoral. But if you have a good community that is morally being responsible to you, they can properly encourage you. I mean, this is Aristotle's great point about a virtue. You don't get a virtue by just choosing it. You have to first cultivate habits and skills and character traits and belief patterns and sensibilities within a community and within self-reflection, and it eventually will constellate into a virtue. You can't just you can't just you can't just will yourself into being courageous. That's not how virtues are cultivated. And cultivation is actually the best term for a virtue. You don't make a plant, you cultivate the conditions so that it self-organizes and takes on a life of its own. And that's what virtues have to be. They have to be second nature that have taken on a life of their own. So with this cultivation of
0: virtue, oftentimes the virtues that we want to be, like the ones that make us like feel good about ourselves, like the high marks of being a human, it just isn't the current reality. And we have behaviors that are actually maybe antithetical to those virtues. In that case, when you have that intention, you have support, but you're still finding yourself engaging in behavior that is actually taking you away from that virtue, I mean there's so many different expressions of that but you know in that space when you're met with like the heat of like the impulsive behavior and you're like I'm about to do the thing even though I said I'm not going to you know how do you navigate that in a way that can integrate that and not again let that tear you under but actually foster potential growth in the future
1: Well I mean this is sort of the the the, the tricky Um, but not in a malevolent sense thing, you know, and you see Socrates and the Buddha converging on this. Um, The realization that you're not being particularly courageous is actually a moment of courage. Um, The realization that you're not being kind is actually a moment of kindness. You try to realize, you try to, again, you try to grow the seed that is within the resistance that's within the impulse, that's and then that is within the inquiry. You don't you don't go looking for it as something that you are profoundly alienated from. You you have to like this is Plato's great thing. If 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 there's nothing in you of honesty, I there's nothing I can do to possibly convince you to undertake on honesty. Right? There has to be something in you that is called to honesty, and you have to see that even when even when you're lying. And, and, but but you, it, when you notice that, even if you continue to lie, and I'm not recommending you do that, but when, like when the, the, that, that recognition that there's something in you calling you towards honesty. And, and so what you do is, right, you you water your Buddha, right? You, you enter into uh, the, the internal dialogue. You You try and say, well, even if I'm going to do that, I'm going to at this moment notice that there's a part of me that is being kind, that is honest, and that's calling me. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend that it's in charge or that I've identified with it as much as I should to be properly virtuous. I'm gonna acknowledge that I'm doing, but I'm gonna see that and I'm gonna try and, what does that feel like? What does that taste like? And I try within the resistance and within the inquiry to see that that which I'm seeking is, this was, you know, Socrates' great idea, we love wisdom. When when we love something, we partially know it, and we partially don't know it. Because if we just knew it, we wouldn't, right, we wouldn't seek it. And if we didn't know it at all, we wouldn't seek it. But wait, we can love honesty. So the thing to do is, even in the midst of the impulse, even in the midst of the deleterious pattern, even in the midst of the resistance, notice that the ability to recognize that is, right, the calling of that virtue, it might be honesty it might be kindness it might be courage and then see if you can pay enough attention to it that you start get the first the first flickering of the flame of love for that and then you engage in those practices with other people and you help to stoke each other's fire um, et cetera, etc etc that's
0: beautiful yeah, I think I heard this on Andrew Huberman in talking about changing bad habits and like changing negative thought patterns. And he, he was saying something along the lines of, it's not about necessarily changing the thought itself, but it's about introducing other positive thoughts. And if you can introduce more of the goodness, more of the wholeness and the right action over time, you just have more capacity to choose that as opposed to, when something impulsive comes up, does that kind of, you're just kind of like flooding your system with just more potential and more uh, expressive responsibility, response. Well, I ability.
1: mean, uh, <laughs> sort of a yes and no. I would say, um, I think I'm in agreement with him in this idea of trying to pay attention, but um I'm worried about the idea of just sort of trying to generate manufactured feelings or good thoughts. Uh, and that's not what I'm talking about. That uh, it's to try and find what's all already present in the very midst, right? Every illusion depends on an underlying reality that it is masking, and right. They're, 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 right this is only an illusion in comparison to something that's real. And so, what you what you want to do is. You want to you want to try and realize rather than I, I guess that's what I want to do I want to I want to propose try to realize rather than introduce what is already there and afford its growth afford its growth not you inflating it or or you introducing it because the problem with that is that is dependent upon right um, the degree to which you can sort of. Make yourself believe something by saying it over and over again, and that—that's a very problematic thing to get into. Um, it's a very problematic practice uh, because that can be a very powerful engine of self-deception. Um, mm. So, I'm in agreement in some ways, but like I say, it, it's for me, it's much more about trying to realize the virtue that is already there, implicit, backgrounded, and just explicate it and foreground it, and then. Give it space to grow by continually doing that. Because if you continually do that, it will that will strengthen its ability to call you. I, mm. you,
0: don't wanna, you don't want
1: to. You don't want to. You want to be called by it. Like a, a virtue or a norm isn't isn't real unless it's calling you, unless it's drawing you beyond yourself. I love that, and I don't want to misrepresent what he
0: said. That might have been. Uh, yeah. maybe just my understanding of what Of course, said. of so, course, of course. You know, and he's a brilliant mind. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. so what this kind of strikes me as is there's something maybe that some people might not have a grasp of in that these qualities, these virtues, are they inherent within humankind, or is that something, are there people out there that have will never have access to these
1: virtues, or is this something that is inborn within us? So this, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a, a long-standing and perennial question. And um, um, I think Whitehead, Alfred Nord Whitehead, drew the whole Platonic tradition that I consider myself within uh, to sort of a point when he said, you know, the thing we can rely on is that evil is ultimately self-destructive. And you see this in some of um, the Christian Neoplatonists like Dionysius and others, and there's this idea that pure evil could not exist. Because you know, it, it's completely self-destructive and it would, comp- and so the degree to which it does things to persist in its existence and persisting in its agency, it's already got some virtue in it. it remember, virtue means a power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you, you know, you, 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 can, you can look at, it. and I want to do this really carefully, so I'm asking for people to be really compassionate in, in how I'm presenting this. Uh, because I'm not advocating for something. I want to say you can look at the heart of what looks, what, what is, not looks, but what is real significant evil like the Nazis, and nevertheless, you'll see that if they were, if they were each ruthlessly, you know, selfish and, and, and greedy, right, they couldn't work together, um, they couldn't cooperate together. Uh, for all of his many vicious traits, Hitler was undeniably courageous, And that courage was one of the things that made him attractive uh, to some of his initial followers. Um, And again, please don't flood this with, but he was evil. I'm not denying that. (laughs) I'm not denying that. What I'm doing is trying to make Alfred what, that to the degree to which anything is acting as a coherent agent, cooperating with others, persuading others, it's appealing to some good in some way. Now, what is typically... The key of the self-deception is that it is pursuing a lesser good at the expense of a greater good. And that is the downward pull that's at the core of evil. But I don't think anybody could be absolutely evil uh, mm. because, uh, I mean, we, we think of really, really horrible psychopaths but um, and perhaps... But the problem with them is they seem to even be capable of certain epistemic virtues, like they they often can pursue being quite rational in a sort of logical sense, and and, and so again, I'm not condoning any. I'm really, really, really not condoning this, but I'm trying to answer your question. And, and I, what I'm saying is, if you if you look really really closely into the heart of evil, two things become apparent. I think. Um, I could be that person, there, right? There, there is there's possible life arcs, narratives that I could be, become that person, and and, you, and that's that's a, that's a moment I think of really important honesty. And then on the other hand, that person is it, it, even in even no matter how vicious they are, meaning full, filled with vice, right? They they are they are still beholding to certain virtues that give them some power and presence in the world. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I brought that up primarily because I can speak to folks who
0: might be experiencing like a deep depression where their self-image is one of loathing. Yes. You know, and it, what you're saying, it kind of reminds me of, so one of my teachers, I mean, he's passed, but I still consider him my teacher. His name is Chogyam Trumpa, Of course, he's I know talking about... Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he talks about, uh, you know, in making contact with unconditional friendliness or this general texture of warmth within ourselves. And he said, if you feel like you don't love anything, anything like what about tortillas you know like everybody (laughs) has a love of something and you can use that quality of uh oh affectate you know you can use that as a springboard to actually expand out from but it takes recognizing where that energy is at
1: right or in the depression the depression is making claims about how reality is and then you 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 dialogue with the depression of course this takes practice and skill i'm not just proposing a technique But you dialogue with the depression and say, but this is because you're actually committed to truth. You're making true claims about Mm -hmm. how the world is. And you're also committed to good. There's some standard that you feel is not being met. And why do you love the true and the good? And tell me, give me, and you get in and you do like the tortilla. But, but, But where are, where, where, like, Give me some actual like. If your standard erodes all anything possibly being true or good, I'm not going to listen to you because you're advocating right that I pursue the true, the good, without with while denying that there's a viable standard there. You, you you and this you can see this is kind of a Socratic move, and, right? And, and some of CBT does this. You say, but well, no, 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 right? There's normativity in here. The depression for all of its self-deceptive, self-destructive aspects, there's still the call towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. And the the question might be, well, why don't I get to call you into question, inner cynic? Why don't I get to call you into question? Why is your voice so authoritative? And how do I know that you have the correct standard of what's true, good, and beautiful? This kind of work um, I find helpful with me and when I've been in uh, helping other people around this kinds of issue, is try it again. Recognize the virtue within and then call the sadistic superego to the standard of that virtue and say, are you really committed to the true, the good, and the beautiful? Then let's ask me some questions and I want you to answer me truly and with good intent. Why should I give you the authority you're claiming to have? And you'll often find there's no good answer and then there's a bit of a space opens up. Uh, again, I... I want everybody that's listening to be clear. I'm not saying this is a magic thing you can do in the midst of depression and it'll just snap you out. But pursued with, with, you know, if you've, before the depression, if you've cultivated these dialogical skills and virtues and mindfulness skills, it can be very powerfully effective. Yeah. So,
0: you know, I know that this might not be your main wheelhouse, but for the folks who have not cultivated those skills, Something that has really helped me in my brief periods of, I mean, I haven't been like too depressed, but you know, we all go through moments. And what's really helped me was moving into my body. Oh, yes. Um, And I'm wondering, like, within your uh, purview, what role does being embodied play in this kind of work and exploring ourselves and uncovering our self deceptions? Because to me, it's, it's created, it's you know, if, if all of my consciousness, my awareness is this ball of just tangled wires, being in my body is like creates a little bit of space around yeah. it. And it doesn't untangle the wires, but it helps me have perspective because not only am I just all these words, but I'm also feeling like, oh, there's warmth in my heart. My legs, they're a little bit sore, but that's better than thinking I'm a terrible person. And so, yeah, what is what is the role of body-based practice?
1: A lot. In- a lot. exploring. Um, and here's where individual issues and cultural issues coincide in a very powerful way. Um, so a lot of what drives the meaning crisis is what I've called propositional tyranny, that we're locked into the propositional level. We, we think that the, on, the only kind of knowing is knowing that something is the case and having true or false beliefs about it. And we're fixated on this. And that's why ideology is so prominent Uh, But of course, there are other kinds of knowing, um, and these are all embodied. This is knowing how to kiss someone, how to catch a baseball, uh, how to enter a conversation. These are not beliefs, these are skills, and this is procedural knowledge, and it's got a different kind of memory, procedural memory. And you know, our skill, uh, can you swim? Is that Is swimming true or false right now? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. Skills aren't true or false, they apply powerfully or not, right? Um, But that's not the only, you have your perspectival knowing. You know what it is like to be you here now in this state of mind, in this situation. Right, you've got the, what is being foregrounded, what's being backgrounded, what parts of your identity are being activated, what parts are being uh, just ignored or held in abeyance. Like all of that's going on, and you know what it's like to be you here now in this situation, and you have a memory, a, r- a particular memory around that called episodic memory. That's knowing what it's like to be, uh, and, and 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 it its realness isn't truth or power. Its realness is, are you present? Are you present? Right. Uh, are you really in the situation is your state of mind are are your state of mind and the situation properly coupled so they are reciprocally disclosing each other that's perspectival knowing and then there's participatory knowing this is the knowing that accrues to you as you undergo transformation as you are transformed by the world and by other people that discloses something about you and the world that can't be realized in any other way and that's stored in your, that weird kind of memory you call yourself. And that's your sense of belonging. That's what opens up all the affordances in, like, in your environment. Now here's, and I'm getting to the point, those are all deeply embodied. I hope you could see that. And those three non-propositional kinds of knowing is where most of the meaning that we were talking about earlier, the connectedness is being made. And if you stay in the propositional, and that's the problem with rumination, which is a driving feature of depression, you are radically disconnected from the non-propositional, and therefore you are radically disconnected from the very machinery that is largely responsible for your sense of being connected to your body, to the world, to other people. And so that propositional tyranny that is endemic in our culture and is driving the meaning crisis... You know, it it insinuates its way into our cognition and exacerbates our proclivities of getting into depressive mental states.
0: Mm. So how do we make this – because, I mean, I'm sure we could even ruminate about, like, positive things. How do we make something – intellectual into embodied like there's like an encoding process i've recognized it within myself and you know through my practices we've kind of split it up as like the view which is like hearing teachings hearing a discourse and then the practice where you actually you sit and you meditate and you recognize the actual what the the map is pointing to you actually connect with the terrain but in in your life history and in what you teach how do you encode like, what you're saying, like, yeah, that makes sense, but, like, does it make sense? <laughs> how, how does that process
1: work? Well, I mean, that's what forty Cogs are. uh, But I first want to note something, that you didn't say the statements, you said the view. So notice that even without realizing it, you use a metaphor of perspectival knowing to try and capture something, uh, uh, right? And so one of the things you can do is pay attention to those metaphors um, in your discourse, Pay attention to uh, the way you enact them. You were doing gesturing while you were doing this. Those gestures are not ornamental. They are constitutive of your ability to actually make sense to yourself and other people of what you're thinking more abstractly, more intellectually. And use that as a doorway into what Corbin called the imaginal. The imaginal is the domain that properly integrates the intellectual, the intelligible, and the sensible together. And the imaginal is... Um, it's it's Corbin co- contrasts it with the imaginary. The imaginary is when you do something like internal visualization, like I ask you, uh, picture a sailboat right now, and then I ask you, are the sails up or down, and you can tell me, right? Mm-hmm. That that sort of disconnects you, um, and it's not clear that that has much value because there's about five to ten percent of the population that can't do that, and they don't seem to suffer any d- deficiencies. The imaginal is something else, um, and, and let me show you how this relates. When I'm te- teaching people Tai Chi Chuan, I say I want you to imagine but this is imagination for the sake of perception and that's what I tell them. I want you to imagine you're standing in a river and your knees to your feet are sinking into the mud. And from the knees to your navel is, uh, is like in the flowing water of the river. It's got that flexibility but the force. And then from that up, that's like the air. It's as rarefied empty as possible. And what that does is that's that's the use of the imagination to sensitize you, right, to otherwise subtle patterns so that you, and I mean this really carefully, so that you re-inhabit your mind and body and your environment because notice it's how you're embedded in the environment and aspects of the environment. The imaginal helps, right, to do this. It helps to get, resensitize you to the embodied aspects, Because if people are trying to do Tai Chi Chuan just by memorizing beliefs about it, they won't cultivate the skills, they won't cultivate the states of mind, and they won't cultivate the traits of character. But if you get them to do this imaginal practice, right, so you get them to notice the imaginal in their life, the gestures, the metaphors, and then you engage in practices that are more explicitly imaginal, and then you link them. And then what happens is the imaginal acts as a bridge going both ways. It's not only that the intellectual domain can get grounded, what you'll find is what's, this is what I've found, what's happening down here emerges up, percolates into even my most, you know, abstract intellectuals endeavor. I'm more flowing, I'm more balanced, I'm more open, I'm more capable of coupling to rather than just forcing on. That's what you need to do. You need to engage, right, in uh Seriously, in the imaginal—that's what all rituals, properly speaking, are. They're ways of seriously playing the way you play music, with the imaginal, in order to afford that that bridge. So I consider Tai Chi Chuan, for example, a ritual, and then it, it actually—it's a—it's a good ritual because it does that connectedness in a way that transfers f- f- transfers to so many non-Tai Chi domains in my life, and to and transfers to so many. Right, non tai chi aspects of my own cognition and my embodied experience. That's how you do it, right? That's what, that's what I would. That's what I have been arguing. Mm.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the instruction that I give the people that I work with because I also teach mindfulness. And the very first step, you know, we break it down into three steps to just keep it easy, is to take your seat. And this I've always explained to people is it's not just the physical posturing, but it actually also represents what we're doing internally when you do something like mindfulness you're making connection to earth to ground and you're extending up into the heavens you're connecting space and earth together and it is embodied perfectly you know and i teach a very specific mudra or like the seal which is having your hands just palm side down on your knees that is like the resting mind mudra and all of that actually contributes to what is happening internally. Because as you move through life where the mindfulness is really being practiced, you know, when you're standing in line at the grocery store, you are taking your seat. You know, when somebody's yes. yelling at you and you've done something Excellent. wrong, you're Excellent. taking
1: your seat. Excellent. Exactly. Yeah. I do something similar when I'm teaching meditation. I get people, uh, before I talk about centering their attention or centering their attitude, I have them center in their body. Like I, they close, I have them close their eyes and move and feel off centered forward. And then back, and then they do this back and forth until they're centered this way. Then side to side, same thing with their head. And then, and you know, relax. them. Now, once you're properly aligned with gravity, you can relax a lot of your muscles. You can sort of sink into it. And then you can savor in your mind and body. What does it feel like to be centered this way? Even before I start talking about centering attention or centering attitude. I do something very similar to what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, you know, as I was saying before this, I'm also a massage therapist, and something that I'm starting to get on the uh, the cusp of is I, I just had this recognize this recognition that like relaxation is not something that happens outside coming in. Like I can do an amazing massage and get you nice and settled in, but like relaxation is something that happens internally.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I've
0: also been trying to like come up with a system or a way to guide people through the massage practice into a greater degree of of somatic self-relaxation. I mean, my ideal goal is to introduce people to the fact that the body has inherent relaxation and Mm -hmm. you don't really need to go to somebody. I mean, it helps when you're really kind of cogged up. But, you know, to me, I'm still trying to develop how to do that in the space because most people just zonk out. But
1: that's great. That's really good, Brett. That's really good. I I think that's a very good project.
0: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you know, with the first, uh, not to dovetail too much, but, um, you know, with uh, the very first episode of your lecture series, you talk a lot about shamanism and the idea of psychotechnologies as being the impetus to a lot of our evolution. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about this in terms of how long it must have taken nature to create the niche of shamans in the human yeah. ecosystem, yeah. Yeah. how much trial and error. So like that is a role that is deeply ingrained in our yeah. human yeah. collective. So. Yes, And I mean, this is probably my bias, but you know, I, I don't think that role has gone, but I think it's transformed. I mean, oh, yes. in Central America, it's still, it's still being practiced, but we as Westerners, I still feel like there is I don't really know exactly who is embodying that role, but I almost feel like massage therapists and manual therapists and somatic practitioners kind of have taken that a little bit because we have the ability to guide people into like secular ceremony, which in a way we otherwise don't have access to because there's so many different, you know, ideologies at play, keeping people from really engaging with something like this. And I know I'm just kind of curious if that brings up anything for you in terms Um, of like where have the shamans gone? And
1: well, I um, mean, yeah, I mean, I think the shamans, I mean, Leo Ferrer and I talked about this in a paper we published, we think, you know, what the shaman is doing in ritual, you know, it's, it integrates aspects of um, hypnotism, it integrates aspects of mindfulness, it integrates aspects of uh, you know drama and theater, it inter, it, it, uh, ritual, of mm-hmm. course, um, resonant ways of being resonant with other people to afford healing and transformation. I mean, many of many uh, many of our categories have elements of it. The rock star perhaps has the shaman's uh, charisma. Um, the therapist perhaps has the, th- the, the, the shaman's capacity for using metaphor and language. The massage therapist um, has the, the shaman's ability to uh, have people re-inhabit their minds and bodies. Um, the mystic has the shaman's capacity to uh, talk about s- uh, and afford self transcendence So I, I see the shaman as basically distributed amongst many different roles uh, that are in our current cultural Uh, Situation. Um, I'm hesitant around people who claim to be shamans today as if shamanism could be reduced to a set of beliefs and practices that you just do, precisely because I think you would have to have the same kind of social functionality as all of those individuals in our society integrated together. Um, And I don't know if that's possible for us, especially in a sedentary, symbolic, civilized environment. I do appreciate what people are doing by trying to get some of what was going on in Socratic uh, entrainment um, um, and, and, and you know and, and induction of the flow state and things like that. Um, so in one way, I think it I think it hasn't disappeared. I think it's disappeared into its descendants. But I think um, I, I I'm doubtful about people claiming to be able to bring back uh, the ancestor. Uh, because you'd really need an individual, to my mind, that you know was had the charisma of a, a rock star, the therapeutic skills of the therapist, uh, the musical gifts of the musician, the, the flair for creating new vocabulary of the poet, the ability to attain flow and at one ment of the mystic, um, the ability to wonder and question of the philosopher, um, and I don't know. I I, I I mean I'm not I'm not trying to foreclose on that, but I just. I, you know, am like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced. Uh, yeah. um, uh, so.
0: Yeah. Well, you clearly have not been paying attention to my charisma. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I really wanted to kind of lead this to, you know, I, I structured this in terms of like ground path fruition, like the ground being oh, the yeah. sense of like, well, what is yeah. meaning? What is, yeah. you know, the sleep quality? How do we start working towards it? And really the fruition, the thing that, Um, you know, I think is the most compelling about a lot of this work and a lot of the figures who have really carried the torch forward, you know, some of the, the greatest, most influential figures of our time, they're always geared towards sharing, you know, what is it about making contact with insight, making contact with just the raw data of reality and how that like opens us up and makes us want
1: to share it. Because meaning in life is about mattering to something that has a reality and an existence and a value beyond your egocentric concerns and existence. That's what mattering is. And right, you want to make a difference in other people's lives for their sake, not yours. That's sharing. People pretend to share when they're actually manipulating or they're narcissists. or But I'm, I'm taking you at your word, real sharing. And that's because what happens is right that the arrow of relevance normally you know we're we're very concerned about how things are relevant to us that's what we're doing when we're solving our problems and uh, and that there's deep reasons for that I won't go into it but we are also we are also mammalian primates with a long childhood which means adults have to turn the adult pa- pa- caregivers have to turn the arrow of relevance around when you have a child and you, want, and you aspire to be a good parent. So I don't mean just biologically reproducing. I mean, when you're committed to the flourishing of your offspring, and of course, all of us who are parents, we know the degree to which we succeed and the real degrees to which we fail. But what happens is the arrow turns around. It's not, how is that relevant to me? It's, how am I relevant to this being? Because unless I agopically matter to this being, and make myself relevant to this being, they will not become a proper person. And, and, and the the only thing that we can reliably point to as inherently valuable are persons. And so, and, and, and you may say, well, why is that? That's just, I think that's just our evolutionary constitution. And I don't think it needs justification any more than eating when you're hungry needs justification. So... I think we have an inborn need to matter and to turn the arrow of relevance around. And when we, when we have something that we think is real, we want to share it because we want it to matter, to put it in kind of a simple phrase. And that's a good thing. I think that is one of the driving motivation that leads people to cultivate virtue. Virtue is the power to matter f- to other people. That's what virtue literally means. It means a power. It's the power to matter to other people in a way that makes their lives better. Mm. Uh, that's why we like we like it when it's honest, because that means you can matter to me. You can share your thoughts with me in a way that will make a difference to me and and, and, and incline me towards a better life. Uh, whereas if you're a liar, that's not going to be the case. Mm. Um so i think when we have these insights because of the kinds of beings we are because we are persons persons born out of agapic love right we've overemphasized how we're biological beings born out of eros right but where ac- our personhood is with that we're born out of agapic love agape precedes us it sustains us and it will follow from us and beyond us Be- because our personhood is is bound up with that agopic love that mattering when something is very important to us we want it to re- we want to take it up into relation to those beings that we regard as intrinsically valuable which are mm-hmm. persons leading good lives in a community of other persons leading good lives and mm-hmm. so and and you know when you when you get when when you talk to people as they're they're approaching reflecting on their life when they get a flip in the ter- temporal horizon, around 35 to 40, you stop living from your birth and you start living towards your death. And then as you hit your 60s, like I do, that starts to accelerate, as you can imagine. And it's amazing what the the, the thing that people zero in on, ultimately, is their, is their relationships, not their possessions, not their power, not their victories, even, not their goals, not their trophies. They zero in on their relationships They zero in on the relationship to themselves, the relationship to other people, and the relationship to reality. And if you're going to relate to other people, if you're going to relate to reality, and if you're going to even relate to your future self, which includes your mortality, you have to learn to turn that arrow around. That arrow, not how is it relevant and important to me. Listen to the word import. I take it import into me. Mm -hmm. But how am I relevant and important to it? In fact, it wouldn't even be an it; it would be a thou of some kind. How am I relevant to thou? You know, it strikes
0: me a lot about the Buddhist teachings of compassion. You know, of course. which often comes from like the Mahayana school, which compassion is usually talked about as like right next to emptiness. Like from okay. emptiness arises compassion in it. The way that I've heard it described is that it's like when the right hand itches, the left hand scratches. There's a spontaneous nature of it that is yeah. uncontrived. Yes. Um, and for and it's hard to like put something like this into words because when you talk about emptiness, you start talking about non-duality yes. and that space in which things just naturally co-arise as care, as love, as um, actual action, like effective, skillful means, upaya. You know. So where at what point? And this might be even maybe parallel to kind of the Western Socratic method of it, but where does this idea of emptiness with compassion arising, like a flower out of it, like, how does that kind of fit into this? Is it important for people, especially of Western descent,
1: to try and grasp that kind of more ephemeral, ungraspable nature? I think it is. And I mean, and this goes to the whole Neoplatonic tradition and also um, sort of one tradition coming out of Heidegger uh, in the West. And this is why Heidegger was uh, of, of such interest to the Kyoto school, uh, you know, philosophers in Japan brought up in, in, uh, in Shin and Zen Buddhism and why they were so interested in Heidegger. And they were, why, why are they so interested in these Christian Neoplatonists like Eckhart? Um, um, and part of it has to do, um, I think, with... I'll start start from the Socratic Stoic tradition and Fromm's idea about the being mode and the having mode. Um, So there are needs that are met by having. I need to have water. I need to have food. And remember, Buddhism is not asceticism. It is a middle way. Buddhism is not denying having needs or trying to eradicate them. Because you need oxygen. You need food. You need water. You need shelter. um, You need medicine, etc. And so there's nothing wrong with the having needs. And the mode we're in in there is we relate to things categorically. I, I'm thirsty, so I need a water container. And I, I need to know how to manipulate it and use it effectively because I, I have to get control of water so I can consume it fairly effectively, <laughs> fairly efficiently. And again, nothing wrong with that, right? But Fromm's point, and he gets this from both Buddhism and Stoicism, is that's not our, those are not our only needs. We also have what he calls the being needs. These are the needs to be something. Maybe they're better called the developmental or the becoming needs. Let me give you an example. I need to be mature. Right. I need to be mature, and that is not made by getting control of something. It's made about entering entering into relationships in which the world and I are reciprocally opening to each other. This is why we carry around. John Ruskin makes this point when we talk about maturity. We talk about it, and l- listen to this. Listen to this phrase really carefully. We talk about it being able to face the world, face up to things, mm. right? And, and it's this idea about entering into a real coupling to reality and really opening up, and that. And that that's going to call forth from you, um, the development of virtues like like maturity, right? And and there you're you're not in an I it relationship. You're in, in an I thou relationship. So you need to be in love. Notice how we have sex, but we are in love. Even the language r- really calls that out. So you need to be in love now. This is, this is what will destroy your relationship with your beloved. If you go, I'm straight, and so if I said, I'm not presuming anything, that's just what I am. I'm, I, I'm not prescribing. I'm just, that's why I'm talking the way I'm talking. And when I go to my beloved, if I said to her, well, you know why I'm with you? Because I, I can categorize, I can categorize you so easily. You're like all the other women I've ever been with. I know how to manipulate and control you and get my needs met as effectively and efficiently as possible. I've destroyed the relationship because that's not... What's going on? What I need to do is, I need to acknowledge. No, what's happening is we are affording each other, realizing the depths of each other. I'm acknowledging and loving the mystery of her that exceeds any grasp I have on her. She is doing the same with me. And that is f- causing us to face up to the depths of reality. And that that, so we bring out the good in each other, right? The problem we get, and especially in our society, according to Fromm and the Stoics, and when, when Stephen Batchelor was a Buddhist, he's not anymore, but when he was, and you know, along with others, we get into a modal confusion. We try to satisfy being needs from the having mode. Instead of, be, instead of becoming mature, we have a car. Instead of being in love, we have lots of sex. Right? Instead of you know, undergoing self-transcendence, we get drunk. We have some, we have some and the fact that we call them spirits is a good testament to the confusion, right? Um so what experiences of no thingness do is remind us sati to bring to mind, to really remember in action, right? They remind us of the being mode because they remind us that being is not ultimately a thing to be had or controlled. Beings can be things, but being is no thing, and the ground of being is no thing, and the ground of being that affords you coming into a deeper writer relationship with being is not a thing itself either, right? So no thingness reminds you of the being mode, and then the being mode reminds you, in the sense of sati, of your deep interweaving Because, as I said, the being mode is realized in relationship. And therefore, it's going to bring you into the importance of that relationship. The mystery of the other. The mystery of yourself. And to me, that is the proper foundation for compassion. I disagree with people who have understood compassion or even metta as having a sort of a particular positive emotion. The Buddha warns against positive affect as much as he does against negative affect. And people just ignore that, right? For me, the positive affect is not a goal. It might be a method. The method is to try and get you back into the being mode where you are opening up to the suchness of another being with your suchness. It's a reciprocal realization of that. And that, of course, brings compassion. You're undergoing it together. Because that is the only way it exists, um, and 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 that it that that's that's tantamount to remembering reality, being, and the ground of being as not being reducible or identical to the things, the beings that we can manipulate and control. That's how I think the the two go together. Wow, I love it. That's wonderful. Well, uh, I could go
0: for another hour, but I know that you have stuff going on beyond this. (laughs) So I think that um, that kind of brings the train back into the station. Uh, So thank you so much, John, for your time. Uh, I really do appreciate uh, you have been doing a lot of media. So you're you're doing a lot of speaking. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate you coming onto my platform and sharing your
1: wisdom with us. Well, I don't know if it's wisdom, but uh, perhaps I'm I'm at least, uh, I aspire to be Socrates. Perhaps I'm getting to share with you my love of wisdom and hoping that you and others can catch it as well and that you can help me further catch it. So, uh, and I think that was happening in our discussion. Um, And so thank you, Brett. Yeah. Uh, So where can
0: people find you? I'm sure uh, the folks who are really resonating with what you're saying probably would want to know where they can keep plugging into this.
1: So, I mean, the best thing is my YouTube channel. Um, And the two best places are the two video series, the one you've already mentioned, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And then the second one is one that's happening right now. We're releasing episodes 10A and B today, and there's going to be 25 episodes. And this is after Socrates, uh, which is about trying to re- recapture uh, the Socratic way of life um, in terms of practices, ecologies of practices, um, cultivation of virtue, meaning, wisdom, uh, both individually and collectively, and how that resonates with other traditions. Um, so those are the two, the, the two main areas. If you're more interested in uh, my academic work, you can just go on Google Scholar and put in my name and you'll get um, my academic work. For the, for those of you who are interested more in the specifics of cognitive science, but you don't want to read academic texts, and I understand that completely, <laughs> um, I have a, uh, I have a playlist called the Cognitive Science Show, where I and this is in, on purpose. I, I I enter into dialogue with other people. At times, it even becomes dialogos, um, and we don't present the uh, what, what is usually happens. You don't present the finished polished project monologically. You show the whole messy, wonderful, creative, dialogical process by which, you know, we can come to some ideas or some powerful ideas about consciousness as one topic. The self is another. So the elusive eye is about the self, uh, the untangling the world knots about consciousness, uh, transformation. Uh, there's one on transformation. There's one on well-being. So if you want to do more cog there's also that uh, playlist available. Awesome. I didn't even know that existed. Oh, cool.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. Once again, uh, we will catch you next time. uh, Take care of yourself. Thank you so very much. All right. That was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. I really do make this show for you. That was Dr. John Verveke. As I said before, if you want to follow his work, head on over to YouTube. I am about 15 episodes deep into his lecture series, and it is, it's is—it's incredible. I mean, you heard here uh, just the depth of his knowledge and him having more time to really explore and open up these topics. It is uh, a treat if this is something that you're into, and I really encourage you to take the time to dive into some of this because it really is transformational material and it has a lot of potential in it. And I genuinely really believe in it. So thank you again so much. If you want to support this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism. we got Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, do all the things that you do in the social media era. Uh, I see you and I appreciate you very much. We will catch you in two weeks with a new episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.